Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Support for the Bowery Boys is also provided by Momix, appearing at the Joyce Theater in New York City from July 24th through August 12th, seamlessly blending illusion, physicality, magic, and whimsy. Momix is pure fun. The company's return to the Joyce Theater is now an annual frolic. This season, Momix's 38th overall, the company of dance illusionists, will be performing their most iconic and beloved choreography. The entire adventure is delivered with tremendous imagination, both in terms of costumes and elusive choreography. Don't miss the company that the Wall Street Journal raves is full of beguiling, eye-filling, and often impressive visual and movement theatrics. Tickets at Joyce.org or by calling 212-242-0800 or visit the Joyce Theater box office at 175 8th Avenue at 19th Street. Episode 267 of The Bowery Boys, Broadway, The Story of a Street. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hello and welcome to The Bowery Boys. My name is Tom Myers. Greg Young, my co-host, is off on vacation this week. He is currently flitting about the coast of South Carolina. But he will be back soon to join me for our next show. In the meantime, never fear, because today we have the good fortune of being joined by Fran Ledden, the author of A New History of Broadway, as in Broadway the Street, the city's most famous thoroughfare. The book is called Broadway, A History of New York in 13 Miles. You know, it's funny because Greg and I have probably mentioned Broadway the Street in just about every show we've done, in some aspect, because, you know, so many of the city's key events have taken place along Broadway or very near it. And that is also the the point of Fran's book, that by telling the story of this street, he's actually able to tell the story of the entire city. Broadway's history goes all the way back to the Dutch days, when it first made its way up the southern tip of Manhattan to the city's commons uh, by today's city hall. On today's show, we'll be discussing how Broadway moved north, literally, how, how it expanded, overcoming natural obstacles and merging with or avoiding old pre-existing roads. We'll talk about how it took on such an unusual route and also how on earth did Broadway survive once the Commissioner's Plan of 1811 was approved uh, to impose that strict, rigid street grid upon the city. 
I think that you're in for a couple of surprises. So let's head into our studio on West 26th Street, just a half a block from Broadway, to meet up with Fran. All right, well, it is my great pleasure to sit down today with Fran Ledden. Fran is an architect. He teaches architecture at the City College of New York. And Fran is a co-author of the fifth edition of the AIA Guide to New York City. But of course, he's with us today because he's the author of the new book, Broadway, A History of New York in 13 Miles, published by W.W. Norton. Welcome, Fran. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, I really, really enjoyed reading this book. All 400 pages before you get to the notes, uh, the lengthy notes at the end of the book. Extremely lengthy notes at the end of the book. Today, I thought that we would take a minute to kind of talk about the nuts and the bolts of the street, if you will, like literally the history of Broadway and how it was formed. But first, your book, Broadway, A History of New York City in 13 Miles. How did you come up with this sort of epic concept for this book? Uh, It was epic, for better or worse. I actually, when I first thought about it, didn't think it would necessarily be so epic. (laughs) I actually thought of it as being an easier version of the AIA Guide to New Uh York City because the AIA Guide is virtually every street in all five boroughs. Right. And this is, an for those not familiar, it's an architectural guide to the prominent buildings of the city. Yes, and, and, and parks and... Public spaces. Public spaces and uh, weird tangents. And um, so I was the boots on the ground for the AIA guide. For the fifth edition. For the fifth edition, because Norval White was retired and living in France. And so he was doing it remotely. But I was the guy, and my students, I have to say, <laughs> who were actually pounding the pavement. And uh, it was interesting, but it was really hard. And so I thought it would be much easier to do one street, well... That didn't prove to be the case at all. <laughs> so we should mention that your book is actually divided by miles. So it's it's the 13-mile history of Broadway. So it's broken up uh, mile one, the Bowling Green. I won't go through all these, but mile mm-hmm. one, Bowling Green to City Hall Park, and then City Hall Park, mile two, to Houston, then Houston to Union Square, Union Square to Herald Square, Herald Square to Columbus Circle, Columbus Circle to 79th, and onward. So now, if, if we could turn our attention then to the actual history of the roadway, the thoroughfare called Broadway, because, um, you know, sort of like stepping aside from the, the history, the greater history of New York that developed around it, I just want to talk about that street. Let's dial all the way back to the Dutch days when Broadway was really nothing more than just a cow patch. Um, mm-hmm. You said in the, in the very early days, there were literally cows roaming along Broadway. It was the way to get the cattle and the sheep, I assume and whatever else, uh, out of the back door of New Amsterdam, which was at Wall Street. There was a gate in Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And they let the uh, livestock out in the morning to go graze on the commons, which became City Hall Park, just north of town. Uh-huh. And then in the evening, they would come back and they would let them through the gate. So Broadway was wider than the other streets. And I don't know if that's from use from the livestock or if they, because it was wider in the beginning, it became convenient to have the livestock go back and forth on that street. I don't know. Interesting. But then it went down to the fort, Fort Amsterdam. 
and this stretch of it from the commons down to Fort Amsterdam was referred to in the Dutch period as Breedeweg. Breedeweg. Okay. All right. So, so I have a, a wonderful neighbor in Brooklyn who's a painter from the Netherlands. Oh, good. Named Lander Vanderpool, and so he's been working with me in some of these pronunciations. All right, because there's a lot of guttural things. Yeah. Right? So I'm going to try. It was Broadway in the Dutch. Two words. And it, it was pronounced Bredevey. Bredevey. Very good. Thank That's you. That's excellent. Apologies to the broad, mic cover. Broadway. Right. Broadway, yes. And so this stopped at the commons. In the, in the Dutch period, it, yeah, it kind of just dissipated on its way to the, to the commons. North of Wall Street, it was nothing more than literally just a path hmm. uh, stamped in the earth. Was it the main street at the time of New Amsterdam? It was, but there were other streets too. There was William Street. It wasn't called William Street under the Dutch, but there was Broad Street mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Broad Street had a canal. Beaver Street had a canal. So those were important streets too. In in those days before landfill, Broadway was the westernmost street oh, in right. the colony. And the houses on the western side of the street had backyards that backed up to the river. Wow. Now, over time, with all the landfill, now Broadway's in the center of the island. But originally, it was along the western side of the island. So it was away from the main mercantile sector, which was Further centered east. on the East River. So those streets, uh, Pearl Street, William Street, Broad Street, were more important for trade. But Broadway became the place where people wanted to live. It was the earliest fashionable district. So that's where all the nice houses were built. During the Dutch period. Starting during the Dutch period, yeah. But there were also, because it terminated at the fort, there were also a lot of taverns around on Broadway Mm. uh, because of all the soldiers there. It's interesting, from the very beginning, it had this diversity of culture and all. it had everything. It had the nicest houses and it had the the low taverns too. Mm. It was remarkable to me in exploring Broadway's history that from the very beginning it had all those ingredients that we know of Mm -hmm. as Broadway. What happened is it just kind of, stretched over time and that all got amplified but it was all there from the very beginning amazing and and so then into the english period once past 1664 and into the english period broadway gets extended at some point Mm -hmm. farther north Mm -hmm. it it was the english who who took it up uh, beyond today's city hall park well they took it originally they kind of uh made it more of a proper street to the commons and a rope walk was built there at the end of the street and like a rope-making factory. Right, a rope walk, a rope-making factory. And that was in the early 18th century, like 1714, 1718. And that, that I believe that that factory is what kind of uh, sucked commerce up Broadway uh-huh. and gave the reason for extending it in the first place. Because then with the rope walk, there were all these other side industries related to shipping, like tanning, and sail-making, and those things kind of clustered around there. And so Broadway started to become a commercial street. Then it gradually was extended. It didn't cross Lispinard's Meadows, where Canal Street is now, until the 1770s. Okay. So, so that this, was later. So really, the whole British period, it kind of goes up to around today's mm-hmm. Canal Street, or just south of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, that rope-making factory, that rope walk was on the east side of the street? It was on the east side, right. Right, So right. you because you spend time talking about how there are these two distinct flavors to the sides of Broadway. You've got the moneyed side, and then you have what you call the shilling side. Right. And this was largely brought about because of the land grant to Trinity Church. Right, so the rope walk would not have been built on the west side because that would have been on 
Yeah, it was Trinity's land. So they wouldn't wouldn't have wanted a rope walk on their property. So everything related to trade had to be on the east side. So from the beginning, the two sides, the western dollar side and the shilling side on the east, were different from each other. That's so interesting. We um we just told a history of Tribeca and a history of Soho and and actually a show on St. John the Divine. In all of those, we've gotten to tell the story of that land grant and of the church farms, which is just an amazing stretch of real estate when you consider that it basically goes from, what, near today's Trade Center site all the way up to the village. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it, it's all of that property. And so how long did that distinction hold, that kind of, you know, two sides of Broadway? I can't say for sure. I mean, it's like a lot of things in the city, it was... It was very pronounced, and then it gradually just faded away. It was definitely at its height in the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm-hmm. By the end of the 19th century, I didn't run across references to it as much, but definitely, especially the first half of the 19th century, it was a real thing when um, all the churches were on the left, on the dollar side. Mm-hmm. So there was a uh, Grace Church, Trinity Church, St. Paul's Chapel, St. Thomas's Church, they were all on the left side, the dollar side. And then A.T. Stewart started his famous department store in 1846. Marble Emporium. Which was, he was originally on the dollar side, and he jumped to the shilling side, which people thought was going to destroy his career. But what happened was that he started to open up the shilling side to more respectable trade. But even after that, if you look at city directories, the things that are on the east side, the shilling side of the street, are things like oyster saloons, daguerreotype studios, phrenology centers, like kind of need- needle stores, thread stores, kind of down mar- market. Kind of down market, yeah. Uh-huh. And all the really fancy stuff was on the dollar side, the other side. And that continued, even if they didn't talk about that distinction, that continued all through the 19th century into the 20th century. Interesting. Um, so you mentioned that the under the British period, really up until like late 18th century, uh, the Lispinard Meadows kind of got in the way of the northward march of Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked many times on the show about Collect Pond and uh, the draining of the pond that led to, you know, swampy five points and the unsettled development there. Uh, but how... How did the city leaders finally jump over Lisbonard Meadows? How did they finally make their way? How did Broadway finally make its way north and through that swampy land? It was in the in the 1770s they built, I think the British built something called the Stone Bridge that spanned what was left of Lisbonard's Meadows. At that point, it had been kind of channeled into a series of ditches. And the main one was spanned by the, the Stone Bridge. And then in the early 19th century, they wanted to turn what became Canal Street into a navigable canal. Right. And they tried to do that, and it was just a disaster. Imagine that. (laughs) A complete disaster. And um, they were trying to develop the city, not just the blocks of Broadway, but all the streets flanking it to the east and west, trying to, to just go ahead and lay them out. But, of course, they kept flooding. They kept They started building houses, and the basements would flood. They, they couldn't get control. They couldn't get control of it, and they didn't know how, how to do it. Of course, now looking back, what a tragedy, because they really, with some foresight, they should have just left it alone, because mm. it would be a real help to us now to have that, because... Yeah, to have this body of it's water. It's still there, mm-hmm. and Canal Street is basically at sea level, and is, as we found out with Hurricane Sandy, is prone to flooding. Yeah. 
But it wasn't until the 18, like after the War of 1812, that they really were able to kind of start developing north, north of the meadows. And Broadway could finally continue its northern march. Yes, and then they continued it north all the way to the Sandy Hill Road, which was the main connection between Bowery Village and Greenwich Village. Now, this brings up another question. So when city leaders were extending Broadway, um, when they were taking it, you know, those first stretches, were they just going north? I mean, was were they following any path in particular that was already laid out, like a footpath? Or were they just saying, okay, no. we're just going to keep going north with this thing? They, it was already really straight. Mm-hmm. So they were just going to continue that line. And I think the distinction was, be, again, between what Trinity owned or what Trinity didn't own. Oh, right. So they weren't going to cut across Trinity's land. They couldn't. So they had to kind of keep that straight arrow path. But also it made sense because the streets that were developing around it were orthogonal and they would just carry, the, those blocks would just carry along with Broadway. Right. And this is happening before the commissioner's plan of 1811, this this first development. So right. there are different street plans happening around it. Uh-huh. Um, but once we get up into, let's say, north of Canal Street, and we're into the early 1800s, Broadway continues to go straight, and really goes straight until it hits about 10th Street, the mm-hmm. site of today's Grace Church, mm-hmm. when it abruptly veers off to the west on its way to Union Square. Why did it make that sudden jut to the left? So one thing, I had been interested in in that, mysterious Ben for years. Uh-huh. I think probably since I first moved here. I noticed it on one of my first visits to New York before I even moved here. And I went to I remember going to Grace Church and wondering about that. And I assumed that the church was older than the street. Right. So that they had somehow swerved to acknowledge the the church. To avoid it. Right. Which it turns out was the opposite. The street was there uh and then the then the church came, you know, 25, 30 years later. I was wondering about that. I thought it was such a mystery. And then I started hearing all these stories about it. Uh, every once in a while, I'd read a story or I would meet somebody who would know one of these stories. And they were the stories were so fascinating because I didn't think any, any of them could possibly be true. But, and I was, what was your favorite story? There were so many variations. There was, um, I think the first one I heard was that the surveyors who did the commissioner's plan were drunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was the first one. Then I heard a variation. They, they just kind of like lost control of their right, pencil. Which is really improbable that that would happen. <laughs> they couldn't line for whatever they were. They had been drinking and they didn't line it up and that became the street. It was really improbable. But then I heard a variation of that that was that they they weren't drunk at the time, but they were heavy drinkers. The commissioners, you know, John Randall and his crew it was true of his crew, anyway, but not Randall. I mean, he was, you know, right. He was pretty meticulous he, he was, where, was, with where he was putting those he stakes. Would, he wouldn't have been drinking on the job, no way, not that guy. But then I heard a variation that they were interested in drinking, and that there was a tavern in their way, a tavern that they didn't want to screw up, so they went around it. So there's that version and again, then, improbable. Yeah, surveying crews don't have that amount of power usually, but then nor do was, pubs. Right, right, exactly. But then I heard a variation of, of that, that it was a house they went around. Then I got a name attached to it, which was Henry Brevert. That's the way I've always pronounced it. Mm-hmm. Brevert, Brevort, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. And that he had been a farmer there and that he had forced the city to go around his house. I heard other variations that it was a, a favorite tree of his that they had to go around. Right. And things about his wife. Uh, there was, his wife plays into it. 
she wouldn't move? Nobody had the same story. That was interesting. Like everybody I talked to had a slightly different version of it, but also they were all emphatic. Like this is what happened. I know my New York history. This is what happened. And I thought it was so fascinating. The first thing I wanted to do when I started working on this book was to figure that out. And I think I have. And we've certainly talked about on the show 11th Street and how it doesn't continue from Mm -hmm. 4th Avenue over Mm -hmm. and cross through to Broadway. It doesn't hit it. You know, a lot of people thought that was because of Grace Church. But again, Grace Church Mm -hmm. wasn't there. And I've heard that that had to do uh, with Brevoort's uh, Orchard. And it did. That did. That was so Brevert and his son, also Henry Brevert, they were all named Henry Brevert. It <laughs> Just made, to make things easy. It made research really difficult. Which Henry Brevert are we talking about? But they managed to stop the city from putting that block of 11th through because his house was right in the path and his orchard. And he was a noted horticulturalist. Mm-hmm. He had fruit trees. And so over time, what happened was that that story, which is true, that they stopped that block of 11th, that got confused with Broadway. People saw the fact that Broadway swerved at that point. And so it be, just became switched so that Brevert and his family had actually caused that diversion of Broadway. <sighs> they kind of conflated the story. Yeah, they just got, I mean, that happens over and over. It doesn't even take that long for that to happen, I found. like Right. A generation or two in a story will get totally turned around. Well, so, hopefully we're setting the record straight. We're setting Broadway straight. Yeah. So... He was involved, Uh but the most interesting thing I found was that he was not opposed to Broadway cutting through his land because it did, it bisected his farm. And he would have been compensated. He was compensated and he was, you know, thrilled by that because his land values went up. But he did petition the city because he wasn't happy with the payout. Mm -hmm. That was the origin of, of that. So there is a kind of grain of truth to that. Okay, But in terms of why Broadway makes that westward turn. Oh, okay. So the reason that happened was that the Bowery is coming from the east, from the southeast, and the Bowery never was part of any plan. And at this point, we should encourage the listener to look at a map (laughs) to to really visualize what's going on here, because we've got Broadway on the west making its way toward today's Union Square, and you've got Fourth Avenue just east of it. So, listeners, just imagine two cars on a highway swerving toward each other, and they're going to hit. <laughs> that's the best. That's the best way to think about it. So, the Bowery or Fourth Avenue uh-huh. is approaching from the southeast. Broadway. They wanted at that point. Broadway stopped at the Sandy Hill Road. They wanted to extend it to the north. They couldn't figure out how to join it to the Bowery in anything other than a really awkward way. So they figured they would just, Broadway has been straight all, all the way from the fort. We'll just continue it straight. And they were originally going to continue it all the way straight over the Bowery. To so con- it would cross so Bowery. It would cross the Bowery and continue north to intersect with what was then called the Middle Road, which is now Fifth Avenue. So they wanted to do that, but then the landowners whose land would have had to have been bisected said, absolutely not. They were three extremely wealthy, influential landowners. So they picked on another group of landowners slightly to the west and turned Broadway and bisected their land. And that was included the Brevert farm. Powerful landowners still were the cause of the hook. Yes. Uh, right, Just right. not Brevort. Just not Brevort, right. Interesting. And so then a couple blocks north at 14th Street then is the junction of Broadway and the Bowery or 4th Avenue in a place called Union Square. 
And I had kind of an aha moment when reading your book because you go into detail about the naming of Union Square mm -hmm. um, and uh, that it was named for the union of these two roads. Right. A lot of people think it's from the labor movement. Right. Because Union Square played such a huge central part in the labor movement, but it wasn't named after the unions. Named it was, after the union. Right? <laughs> the union, one union here, right. not labor unions, not the North versus the South. It's named after the exactly. union of two roads. Right. And so it is here then that Broadway, now at a diagonal, is crossing a, an important road, a street, an important avenue, and forming the first of these big squares or outdoor parks, what would become mm -hmm. a big park. Mm -hmm. But the city would do a couple other things. They would, they would introduce a few other roads to help define Union Square. So it was Union Square had a lot of different shapes over the years as it was in the process of becoming a public space. And what really turned it into the quadrangle that we know today is when uh, Samuel Ruggles, who's a real estate developer and lawyer, convinced the city to extend uh, 4th to the south, 4th Avenue, in University Place to form the, the east and western boundaries. So University Place didn't exist at this point. It did. It was just extended to the north. Oh, I see. Okay. It was further south. Oh, right. And it would it stopped there. So it was extended north to become right. the, the western right. border of Union Square. And if I'm not mistaken, 4th Avenue was extended to the south because that was part of the commissioner's plan. Um, and this is in the 1830s, 40s. 1838, I think. Right. So at this point, we have a commissioner's plan. Mm -hmm. We have stakes all over Manhattan. Mm -hmm. We don't have roads paved all over the place, oh, no. uh, but they're, they're making their way north. And we have Broadway that's just sort of careened into form Union Square. Now, for the next three and a half miles, really, Broadway goes at a diagonal, for the most part, all the way up to 79th Street, from that hook around 10th Street. It just keeps going at an angle until it straightens out again, more or less around 79th Street. Was that in the commissioner's plan? What what was Broadway in the commissioner's plan? Um, they did not want Broadway to continue. It was it played no part in their plan at all because it broke it, the grid. Because it was a diagonal. It was a that uh, diagonal part of the the street was the old Bloomingdale Road, which was a early 18th century colonial highway, which was really narrow. If you look at the Randall Farm maps, it it is never. Uh, uniform in width. It narrows and widens. And yeah, it meanders across the island. So they thought they, they wanted to eliminate all the old colonial roads that were crisscrossing the island. So they eliminated the Boston Post Road, which ran up the east side of the island, and other less important streets like Love Lane and Steuben Street. And there's all these other streets that they eliminated in the Bloomingdale Road. They, they were very clear that they wanted to get rid of it. And they wanted to go back and fix the bend at 10th Street. Oh. That was part of the commissioner, the original 1811 commissioner's plan. How they, are they going to fix it? They said, we're going to, we're going to, uh, these are my words, not theirs, but we're going <laughs> to, we're going to go back and uh, fix this awkward angle by straightening Broadway as originally intended and crossing the Bowery. And then it's going to go up to 23rd Street and it's going to end there. It's going to become a dead end at 23rd Street. And then starting at 23rd Street, we'll have this huge public space called the Parade. So they wanted Broadway to end there, and they, as John Randall put it, it would become lost in the parade. It would become lost. 
And and the parade we should know was huge. It was this immense huge, yeah. park because there was no Central Park too in the in the plan. Right. And it, but they didn't want it to be a park. It wasn't a, a park in the modern sense. Like it a was, military. Training. It was a well. It was a open space, uh-huh. and they felt like they needed an open space for air circulation because they didn't understand yellow fever and cholera, and so they they wanted to have an open space. It was thought that oxygen was the thing that you needed to fight these epidemics, which was kind of... Kind of true. Kind of true. Not technically, but kind of true. Certainly would help. And for the military to to practice. So really then the, the history, the next sort of part of Broadway's history from Union Square up to the Upper West Side and then farther north is really a story of how Broadway intersects with this old road, Bloomingdale Road kind of weaves in and out of it in different ways, erases many parts of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is what you spend a lot of time in the book discussing. We're going to talk much more about Broadway and the Bloomingdale Road right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show. Sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country— including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Okay, we're back with Fran Ledden, uh, the author of Broadway, A History of New York City in 13 Miles. So you were just saying uh, that the commissioners, the original commissioner's plan mapped out Broadway to continue north, to take out the bend at 10th Street and continue north up to 23rd to the parade ground uh, where it would disappear. That, of course, didn't happen. And the Broadway that we know and love instead was formed, this amazing slanted thoroughfare that extends at an angle from about 10th Street to about 79th Street uh, and then continues north. 
taking over many bits of the old Bloomingdale Road. Now, we've talked about the Bloomingdale Road in, in several shows before as a, a road that was kind of going down the west side of Manhattan, the upper today's upper west side. Do you know when the Bloomingdale Road uh, developed? I think it was surveyed in 1703. Okay. So it was pretty early. So around the same era, uh, era that the Boston Post Road was put in and the Kingsbridge Road further to the north. And this was a road that was serving people, farmers, uh, people who lived in estates along the west side of Manhattan? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that's that was the reason it was there, to just provide access to that part of the island. Which was populated, but sparsely populated. Sparsely populated. And yeah, it was farms and it was uh, estates, exactly. And the commissioner's original intent was just to wipe it away as they were wiping out other other roads. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't uniform. It wasn't part of a grid. And this was the early 19th century. You know, this was the American Enlightenment. This was all about symmetry. and you know, Angles those, were good. Right angles were good. Yeah, these kind of amorphous, organic roads just seemed really impractical to them. And uh, they wanted to just get rid of them. Also, they those early roads also defined were defined by the properties on either side of them. So another part of this is that the commissioner's plan wiped out all of the existing property lines. That must have been a nightmare. I mean, in terms of legal battles and people trying to make claims. Yeah, but they were given complete power over developing by the state legislature for developing the island. And there were lawsuits. It took forever to actually build the commissioner's plan. But there weren't nearly as many lawsuits as there would be today. I mean, if you consider it the entire island of Manhattan, it it only (laughs) took less than a century to to put all those streets down. Right. It's pretty extraordinary. So there were delays because of lawsuits, but not really in a general sense. People pretty much got out of the way. Mm. They were allowed to keep their property, but the property lines no longer lined up. Yeah. So the the Bloomingdale Road was, since it was so old, it divided property east and west. So that was a huge thing that had to get sorted out. Hmm. And, and I think it survived because... The people who owned property along the Bloomingdale Road were so influential. There were people like John Jacob Astor and had money that it hung around. I think they just kind of delayed its disappearance to the point where finally the legislature stepped in and restored the Bloomingdale Road to the grid or Broadway to the grid. Was that because so much time had passed that there was already a different sort of philosophy about city planning? No, it wasn't a philosophy. I think it was just dollars and cents. And I think... Power. Yeah, and I think it was property owners along Broadway not being happy that it was about to disappear because they had been banking on Broadway's value. That's why they own the property there. And Broadway was useful because it was the main street going up the west part of the island. Right. And so so people like the Astors, um, and you write that the Astors were buying up all kinds of parcels and just sitting on it, you know, not even developing it. Yep. Waiting for it to appreciate, sometimes a generation. Mm Mm-hmm. So they would be buying up lots along Old Bloomingdale Road, mm-hmm. hoping that those lots would be someday along an extension of Broadway because Broadway was powerful. That's right. That's right. Now, it's interesting, you know, I guess I had thought that Broadway was planned in a way by city planners to give visual interest and public space you know, where Broadway hits the avenues and the major streets. And today we have these wonderful outdoor plazas, you know, mm-hmm. Union Square, Madison Square, Herald Square, Times Square, and on, Columbus Circle. 
these are outdoor places that break the grid and that we all congregate in. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. Those, those are happy accidents of this unintended um, preservation of Bloomingdale Road. Well, it, they, I mean, they seem like they must have been planned because they're some of the most wonderful, coherent spaces in the world, right? right. But they're, no, it was just time, really. It was, was a complete accident. They weren't supposed to be there. Huh. Um, those spaces were these leftover pieces of land that had comparatively little value. And some of them were developed, like famously the Flatiron Building is on one of those little leftover spaces. And the um, Times Building. And the Times Building. So some of them did get developed, but most of them, especially um, Times Square and Herald Square and, and Greeley Square, mm-hmm. were so tiny that they just kind of hung around and the city wanted to get rid of them. There were all kinds of ideas about just eliminating them and, and then you could have more space for traffic and things like that. Um, and they just hung around and then eventually became public spaces. But hmm. yeah, it's a total accident. And in the case of Union Square and Madison Square, those developed really first by real estate developers mm-hmm. who were looking to build a, a new fashionable, a new Tony neighborhood. So yeah, and then to the east, there was also Stuyvesant Square, Gramercy Park, mm-hmm. Tompkins Square. And those were developed by, yeah, as you say, by real estate speculators. Ruggles. <laughs> Ruggles and, and others laying out, mostly Ruggles, laying out building lots on old farmland and laying out these parks as something that would be an amenity that people would want. It was an emulation of Bloomsbury in London. It was a very self-conscious thing. They were going to have these public squares that are not going to be public. They're going to be private, most of them. Mm -hmm. And then that'll increase property values. So yeah, so Madison Square, Union Square is the same thing. Now, we just mentioned Times Square. Um, And heading north here, you know, it's interesting. That takes us into the Broadway Theater District. In any discussion of Broadway is obviously going to include some kind of conversation about Broadway theater. So I just want to step aside for one second and ask how you kind of navigated that as an author dealing with a book on Broadway. or What role did theater play in this book? Well, it's all through the book because the theater district started in the first mile and then gradually expanded and moved to the north. They were always near Broadway. The first coherent theater district was centered around Broadway, around City Hall Park. Mm -hmm. The Park Theater. Right. So the Park Theater was 1790-something. Into the the early decades of the 19th century, that was the only show in town. But then other things were built around there. There was an opera house on Chambers Street. There was an opera house on Church Street nearby. And then there were these museums, these great museums like Peel's Museum on the west side of City Hall Park, and then Scudder's Museum on the east side, which then moved around and became eventually Barnum's American Museum. One of the great oddball museums. Yeah. And there were other museums around there too and lecture halls and things like that. And so those were all around City Hall Park. And then they started spreading simultaneously up the Bowery and Broadway as things pushed them from the south, offices and warehouses and things like that. So the theater district gradually moved to the north. Right. So it was making its way then up toward around Union Square, then Madison Square. And then there's that stretch from basically Madison Square all the way up to today's Times Square mm-hmm. um, that became known first. I liked your chapter on the Rialto, the fact uh-huh. that it was referred to as the Rialto and then eventually the Great White Way. Mm-hmm. Where did that term Rialto come from? 
So I think I found the origin of that. I'm pretty sure it was a editorial in the New York Times in the 1860s complaining about Broadway's traffic, which was legendary. Uh-huh. And also the fact that you know, I think it was in the spring and there were a lot of there were the spring rains and it was not well drained and it was always wet and muddy. And so whoever wrote this article in the Times said that we should just turn Broadway into a canal to and, and have boats going up and down. Satirical, not, <laughs> not actually suggesting that. And then crossing it at 14th Street with a Rialto Bridge. Oh, as in, in Venice. Right. And the Merchant of Venice and all that stuff. And, you know, so that was the earliest reference I heard to anything around Broadway and 14th Street called the Rialto. And I think from there, somehow it caught on and that became, that intersection was called the Rialto. And then that became applied to the theaters around there. And But as far as I know, that's why it's called the Rialto. And then it was the introduction of the electric light bulb into the marquee. Uh, Mm -hmm. that stretched from Madison Square up to 42nd Street. Mm -hmm. They gave us the phrase, Great White Way. The the first thing that happened was the street lighting before the marquees. Oh. Um, And that was the brush company with their arc lights. And as soon as they put them in, in 1880, people commented on the white, the white light that they were producing. Because that was a glare. Yeah. And it, the arc lighting. The arc light was a very intense white light as opposed to the gas lights, which were kind of yellow. Or even Edison's incandescent, which was a kind of softer. Softer light, right. So Edison was also trying to do the same thing, but Brush beat him to it, and he installed the street lights along Broadway. And then Edison came in around the same time, a few years later, and started putting incandescent light bulbs into billboards and then theater marquees. And then the term Great White Way, it's like around 1900, 1901, you start seeing that reference. And you give examples of other towns around the country that then tried to replicate that by building their own Great White Ways. Well, it's interesting because it was such a phenomenon, the fact that Broadway was then open for business late at night. Mm -hmm. That's really what it did. And other towns it saw that. It extended the the commercial yeah. part of the day. Yeah, restaurants, theaters, hotels, stores. And other towns saw this and thought, well, we can do the same thing. Not appreciating the fact that what really made Broadway special is, again, there was really no planning. It just was this kind of <laughs> accumulation of ideas all kind of colliding into each other over time. Mm-hmm. And, and the, kind of the chaos of commerce. Yeah. That kind of creates the right. buzz of the street. Right. But it was the Great White Way also was an accident. I mean, it just kind of happened and it was difficult to replicate. Every city and small town thought that we can just build one, but it wasn't quite as easy as that. Hmm. So I read these accounts of of really disappointed <laughs> <laughs> people in, you know, El Paso and Topeka saying we can't pay the bills to keep our street lighted. Till, the electric bills. Till, right. The electrical bills they hadn't considered and complaints that, oh, we had this great white way that opened last year. And now it's, you know, it's hardly ever turned on and uh, oh. just a big downer. <laughs> <laughs> what is sadder than an unlit great white right, way? Right, right. Great dark way. <laughs> you also mentioned that it was the subway, the opening of the subway in 1904 that really helped kind of define Times Square and really bring the multitude. I mean, fine, you have the Times building uh, that went up at about the same time. You have theaters finally breaking north of 42nd mm-hmm. Street. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until the 1904 opening of the subway and that initial route of the subway that kind of hooked up and finally hooked up with Broadway 
at 42nd Street mm-hmm. to go north, mm-hmm. where the crowds really came into that area and land values along Broadway at that point skyrocketed. And also the theater district, it did get to Columbus Circle and even a little further north, but for the first time, the theater district kind of paused. Uh huh. Not only theaters, but also hotels, restaurants, all these other things. It paused around Times Square, and more and more of them were built to the point where it became, for the first time, a, a really kind of permanent district that wasn't likely to get forced any further to the north. And the reason for that is that geographically, it was wedged between Grand Central Station and Penn Station. So it had this constant supply of customers coming and going. And so it just got, rather than continuing north on the street, it just started to spread out east and west along side streets and got bigger and bigger and then stayed put. Wow, I never thought about that. So it was these train stations and trains in general that kind of defined the theater district. Well, the subway was the main thing, Mm -hmm. the the main reason it happened on Broadway. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the fact that Broadway was equidistant between these two stations, it's bringing in people from all over the country. That's why, that's why Midtown happened, not just the theater industry, but that's why Midtown happened. That's why all the skyscrapers in Midtown happened. I want to stay in this area because I have so many questions, but I think we have to keep going farther north. We have still half the island to cover and not very much <laughs> See, this time. See, is, this is the problem I had writing the book, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm like, I have, oh, I have another year to work on this, and I'm only at 14th Street. You know, what am I going to do? <laughs> oh, man. Yes, I shouldn't have spent so much time talking about the Rialto. Um, let's push up to around Columbus Circle, where something interesting happens. I feel like the the character of Broadway changes in another dramatic way. It becomes, well, a little loftier, much wider. There's a median. It's leafier, it seems like Paris. What's going on? It was after the Civil War, and the city decided that New York should be Paris. That's what's going on. So they... they this because was, house, in Paris, they'd done this. Right. Um, Houseman had done all this amazing city planning and built right. these beautiful boulevards. Right. So yeah, Baron, whatever his name is, Houseman, <laughs> Vaughn. I can never pronounce that. <laughs> is laying out these wide, majestic boulevards in Paris, and everybody in the world saw this. And New York wanted its own version. It's interesting because a lot of the decisions that were made were based, before that were based on competing with other American cities, especially Philadelphia. Uh So like the construction of City Hall in the early 19th century was all about competing with Philadelphia. And they, if you read the the notes of the Common Council, they're saying that explicitly, like, if we're going to compete with Philadelphia, we need nicer architecture. So by the city was still stinging about, you know, losing the capital. Right. Briefly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So by, by the end of the Civil War, they're talking about making New York into Paris. So it's interesting. They're going from competing with American cities to the European capital. So it, it's interesting to me that that says what they thought of themselves and how they positioned the city at that point. And where was Broadway at this point ending? Was it just kind of like making its way through Midtown and sort of like it, it was hooking in with the Bloomingdale Road? Well, at this point, after the Civil War, it was still the Bloomingdale Road, that, that whole part. So this is before the theater district happened and Times Square and everything. Right. So it's still just an undeveloped uh, country highway at that point. And they decide to um, – it's the Central Park commissioners. So this was actually part of the work for Central Park, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Mm-hmm. Touches, 1860s. 1860s. It touches Central Park at its southwest corner at Columbus Circle. Right. They, as the Central Park commissioners, 
led by Andrew Haswell Green. Mm-hmm. Very important. Uh, he was later responsible for consolidating the five boroughs into one city. The father of Greater New York. The father of Greater New York. So he's on the commission, and and he's the one who comes up with this idea of using the Bloomingdale Road to lay out this grand Parisian boulevard. So it went from 59th Street all the way up to 168th Street, actually, eventually. But first, it was just going to be that stretch of the Bloomingdale Road up to 106th Street. So yeah, they widened the Bloomingdale Road. They erased a lot of it. And they were allowed to do this? He was given authority by the city planners to it, break the grid? No, it was a state project. So again, uh-huh. once again, the state legislature is superseding the city's common council and telling them what's going to happen. Interesting. So it was a state project. But yeah, they were given free reign to design all of Upper Manhattan. North of? North of 155th Street. That was the part of the island that had been left out of the commissioner's plan. Plus to lay out a new public drive, they called it, along the west side of the island. So the Bloomingdale Road became that that boulevard. So Haswell and the other planners at this point have the authority to, to plan this grand boulevard that leads to their new big park. And they decide to, to lay it out along Bloomingdale Road. But in, in the meantime, they're expanding Bloomingdale Road. They're widening it. They're mm-hmm. beautifying it. Mm-hmm. So they, it was very narrow. I think it was maybe 30 feet wide or something. So they, they widened it to 150 feet, which is much wider than Broadway, to the south of 59th Street. And the extra width allowed them to put uh, what they called a mall running up the middle, which was planted with trees and shrubs. It was intended as a walking path that you could walk up the middle of it. Oh, good luck trying that today. Yeah, well, then the subway came in later and destroyed that part of it, although the the mall is still there, the trees are still there. Right, so when they were doing them later in in 1900, and when they were building with the cut and cover technique, uh, that first stretch of the IRT, they were cutting up basically the mall? Yes. And that's why there are the vents. You, You can still see some vents as you walk up and down that stretch of Broadway. Right. So then it's the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and you have this new beautiful Grand Boulevard that's going up today's Upper West Side. But you write in your book that much of the development of the neighborhood at this point is happening farther east um, along 8th Avenue, Central Park West, and 9th Avenue, which would become Columbus. Why was it happening over there? Why was there not development? It seems like there'd be a lot of development happening along this beautiful stretch of this new boulevard. Well, like everything in the city, it was all about rapid transit. So the boulevard had no rapid transit. Ninth Avenue got its own elevated railroad. Columbus Avenue. Yes, in the 1870s. So as soon as that happened, as always happens with rapid transit, development started happening around each station and then spreading and filling in the between blocks. Mm -hmm. And so Columbus or Ninth Avenue was thriving by the 1880s, 1890s, because of the elevated railroad and Broadway or the boulevard at that point was still almost all vacant lots. And who actually owned the land around around Broadway and around this well, Grand Boulevard at this point? A, a lot of it was owned by the Astor estate, the Astor family. And, so, and they were, as you mentioned earlier, they were famous for buying land and then just holding on to it. It was a catch-22 because property values weren't going up, so they didn't want to develop. But one of the reasons property values weren't going up is because they wouldn't develop. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, Columbus was thriving. Broadway at that point was just a, a mud puddle, a long mud puddle. And so this wouldn't change really 
Until the subway opened in 1904. That's right. Well, there was there was an intermediate period where they did put in electric trolleys, and that kind of initiated a, a wave of development around 1899, 1900. But then right after that, the trolleys were superseded by the subway, and then that overnight the west side exploded didn't didn't explode over over (laughs) (laughs) overnight the west side was developed with the famous parisian apartment houses like Mm -hmm. the the, uh the dorleton the ansonia the belle claire etc etc right and you write about some of the eccentric owners of some of these new uh french flats the french flats yeah so especially william earl dodge stokes part of the wealthy stokes family and he developed the Ansonia Hotel, apartment hotel. Kind yes, of, he, he was a character. A despicable character. Yes. Uh, but moving farther north, um, and then it would be later around the turn of the century, and really around the same time that the, the subway opened, that farther north, north of 110th Street, would become kind of this acropolis, the acropolis uh, of the Upper West Side, with the opening of Columbia and of uh, Barnard, but of St. John the Divine, theological schools, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I had another aha moment um, (laughs) when I was reading the section about Columbia because uh, we've talked on the show and we did a history on Columbia and we talked about uh, the asylum, the Bloomingdale Asylum Mm -hmm. that was up there. That parcel of land uh, that was the asylum was bordered to the west by the Bloomingdale Road. Yes. But Broadway does not follow the Bloomingdale Road there. Broadway continues straight north through right. that Bloomingdale estate right. and really sort of like cuts it in two. And that parcel today on the eastern side is Columbia and on the yes. western side is Barnard. More or less, yeah. So Broadway was on a northern march and it was, it was headed straight. So it was breaking with the Bloomingdale Road trajectory. Yes. So at that point, the Bloomingdale Road was really winding back and forth and it crosses and recrosses Broadway because they sent Broadway straight north. The Bloomingdale Road had respected the topography, and at that point, Morningside Heights, it was, it's difficult, it was difficult to get a, a road up and down that hill. Right. And you still notice that. You go kind of way up, and then you swoop way down. Right, of course. It's- so the Bloomingdale Road took a much more gradual procession into that valley. And that would be a reason that the street grid is not imposed directly atop that section of Manhattan as well, in so, Manhattan Valley right, and, so, and farther then, north. And then once you get into Manhattan Valley, then that is Manhattanville, which was a village that was there and had its kind of own logic. So the grid, as it was developed around, it kind of had to negotiate those streets, which are not on the orthogonal. Moving then farther north um, into Washington Heights and then up into Inwood, Broadway again is kind of snaking around and you, you sort of finish with some fascinating tales really of characters, you know, and of different people who, whether it be Billings um, and his amazing estate that would mm-hmm. become uh, the land of today's cloisters mm-hmm. or, you know, a man who lived like a hermit and claimed to own all the land up there. I mean, it, yeah. it, the book ends with these fascinating character studies. Yeah. And that's my favorite part of the book, as it turns out, especially that section with the three biographies. <laughs> so um, the sculptor, George Gray, Barnard, the squatter, the angry <laughs> squatter, uh, Martin Mullenauer, and the gas magnet, Cornelius Billings, with his estate on the up on the hill. Yeah, it, what happened was that in the earlier miles, there, so, there were so many things I had to check off that anybody reading a book about Broadway was going to require. 
So I had to have stuff about theaters and hotels and shopping and skyscrapers, skyscraping, yeah. skyscrapers and ticker tape parade and uh, so many important things that had happened, so many important people, so many important places. And it was like a jigsaw puzzle just trying to get all that in. Once you get up into Washington Heights, I mean, nothing against Washington Heights or anything, but it's a neighborhood and comparatively speaking, not as much of note has happened there as opposed to down by Wall Street. So at first I thought that was a liability, but then I realized that I can write about whatever I want. So I can write a whole chapter about this guy and it allowed me to kind of be a little freer with the narrative. And I'm actually happiest with those upper miles in the way they turned out. Interesting. And so unexpected. Yeah. And beyond the cloisters, let's, let's keep going north. How did you end? How do you take us off the island? Because Broadway actually does continue right. once it leaves Manhattan, and it even continues outside of New York City. So how did right. you call it quits in this book? So the last chapter is called Where Does This Road End? Because I really grappled with that. Originally, it was going to go all the way up to Albany. Wow. Wow. And right? I thought this was epic. Right. So I spent, I don't know, the first year working under that assumption that it was going to be all, all the way up to Albany. Then I thought it'll just be Manhattan and the Bronx. And I ended up getting the reader into the Bronx, but no further. So it's basically about Manhattan. And I thought that that's enough. I didn't have time to do any more. But also I thought that's really the heart of the matter. The whole, the Great White Way, um, the Canyon of Heroes, that whole thing about Broadway. And that to go further north would start to become about something else. So, Well, maybe that something there. else can be your next book. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and with that, uh, we say thank you to Fran Ledden, who joined us to discuss his new book, Broadway, A History of New York City in 13 Miles, just out from W.W. Norton. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Thomas. And listener, thank you so much for joining us today on this on this little romp through Broadway's history. We would especially like to thank our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys with their small monthly donations. It is because of you that we're able to continue producing the show. I mean, quite literally, it's because of you that we're able to do things like buy recording equipment or rent the studio space that we use for today's interview with Fran. So thank you, because we couldn't be doing the show without you. To find out how you can join more than 750 other Bowery Boys listeners and have VIP access to patron-only shows and events, visit patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash boweryboys. Greg will be back with me for our next show, which is going to be taking us back to the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, it's really going to be a fun one. So have a great New York week whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, 
a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.